G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. This is her first meeting with Christ and she already understands the gospel completely. Jesus is trying to teach that absolutely no one is too far from God that they can't be reached. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill and thanks for joining me on Today with Jeff Vines. And in this episode, Pastor Jeff continues his sermon on repentance and forgiveness. It's just one message in our series called Remarkable. Today, Pastor Jeff is in two verses, Mark chapter 7, verse 24, and Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. In a moment, we'll jump back into the message. We're looking at the interaction Jesus has with a Canaanite woman and the depth of her faith. Let's continue firstly in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Here on Today with Jeff Vines. think of dogs as pets that are in part of our house and part of our lives. First century dogs were not pets, folks. They were scavengers that made their way up and down the streets to lick the running sores of those who were in some kind of ailment or experienced some kind of sickness and they were just scavengers and they were just pests, real pests. Jesus calls her a dog. He ignores her and he says he wasn't sent for her kind. And I want to explain to you what's happening here. Listen, Walter Winkus, I'm indebted to him, a great theologian, philosopher. Jesus is one of the greatest teachers ever. Even people who don't believe in the Bible or believe in God acknowledge Jesus was an incredible teacher through parables. But a great teacher, you know, does more than just dispense information. He gives you life experiences. If you've ever been to college or university... And you know a teacher who just stands up and reads word for word his lecture notes, you don't learn a lot. But a teacher who lives it and breathes it and puts you in experiential circumstances where you feel it and it's more of an existential thing as well as a head knowledge thing, then those two meet together and you learn. You learn more when there's tension than any other time in your life. That's why sometimes when you say, man, Pastor Jeff, where are you going with this? I just don't like this. That's good for you. You're having to grapple with something. The greatest times of learning in my life have been when somebody came to me and said something like, how can you believe in God with all the evil in the world, pastor? Wow, that's a good question. How can you believe that the Bible is the word of God? I mean, really, the word of God? How can you believe all these things? And that put me in a corner and I felt like, man, that's a good question. And it's why I wrote the book, Dinner with Skeptics. It's a lifelong of answering difficult questions of people who ask them of me and then me grappling with them. Listen, Jesus uses what is called deliberately induced frustration 
when he wants to have drastic measures or take drastic measures to teach the disciples a lesson they're not learning. What is deliberately induced frustration? It's when he sends them into the crowd and says, well, there's about five to 8,000 people here. Why don't you feed them? Knowing there's not enough food to just see how they'll respond. He goes up on top of the hill, sends them on a boat on the sea, knowing a storm is coming just to see how they'll respond. Deliberately induced frustration, tension. He says things that are very difficult to understand without explaining them. He'll say something like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they'll say, what? Tension. They'll have to grapple with it. Truth is most powerful, people, when we have to work to discover it. Truth discovered has greater impact than truth presented. And the disciples need remedial help. And here's what Jesus is doing. He has one eye on the lady and one eye on the disciples. He's careful with her, but at the same time, he's very bold. Because it's one thing to have opinions that you hold inside that are really nasty and slanderous. It's another thing to hear somebody voice what you believe inside, to give voice to it, to hear it out loud. So Jesus is simply saying what he knows the disciples are thinking, hoping that one of them will stand up for her. You got it? Because if you'll notice in verse 23 back there, the disciples, they send her away and it appears as if Jesus says, hey, good call guys. I don't have any time for any Gentile female riffraff. Send her away. But he doesn't send her away. It's like he just says, let's see what they'll do. And with each measure, he gets a little bit more aggressive, hoping that one of the disciples will stand up and say, wait a minute. How can you ignore this woman who's in pain? That's not what you've done in the past. They don't do that. Then he, he says, I was only sent for the house of Israel. He's hoping one of them, what do you mean only the house of Israel? You've helped people from all walks of life in every culture, every people group, the Romans, the Samaritans. What do you mean? And then finally, he takes a drastic measure and says, I'm not meant to give the children's bread to the dogs. I mean, at least then you would have, okay, Jesus, now you've gone too far. All right, it's one thing to ignore, one thing to say, you know, that you're only sent for the house of Israel, but do you have to call me? Come on, she's a mother in need. But none of the disciples stand up. Now, to make sure he communicates well with the woman to where she doesn't get discouraged and leave, he softens every phrase just a little. Let me give you an example. Go back to verse 26. Here's how it actually reads in the original language. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little doggies. Okay? Now let me give you a picture of a little doggie. You, you've heard my story where the guy rides a moped and has a chihuahua on the back. And then there's, he pulls into a bar and he's going to go in to get a drink. And he parks his bike right beside this huge Harley Davidson with a Great Dane on the back. And he goes into the bar and the guy, big muscular guy, big t-shirts, you know, big leather jacket and tattoos and says, man, what are you doing? Are you crazy? You better go move your bike. My dog will kill your dog. He says, man, I didn't think about that. You're probably right. He runs back out. 10 minutes later, comes back in and says, dude, you're not going to believe this. My dog killed your dog. He said, you're crazy. He said, yeah, he got stuck in his throat. <laughs> That's the little dog we're talking about here. Very little dog, like a chihuahua. Like, and which you know is just an overgrown rat, but chihuahua, stand chihuahuas, but chihuahua. Now, she picks up on that. She picks up on what Jesus is doing. I think she gets it. She's seen what Jesus is doing with the disciples because she answers Jesus within the parable, which is amazing because she comes back and picks up on Jesus' diminutive use of doggy 
And she says in verse 27, and this is how it should read. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the little doggies eat the little crummies which fall from the master's table. <laughs> you get it? She says, I got it. I know what you're doing. You're trying to teach them a lesson. You're using me. So she allows the banter. When theologians read this passage, they say, here's what's so amazing. Jesus is trying to teach that no one, absolutely no one is too far from God that they can't be reached. That his love and mercy are available to all who call on the name of the Lord. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter where you were born, no matter how deep the pit of sin in your life, God's forgiveness is deeper still. No matter how far you've strayed away, it's one decision and one move back to God. And the astounding thing is, the disciples have been with Jesus for months now and they still don't get it. This woman, alternatively, this is her first meeting with Christ and she already understands the gospel completely. One encounter. She gets it so much that first of all, she allows the banter to go back and forth between Jesus and the disciples, but also she, all, she knows that there's some truth in what Jesus says. Now stay with me. She knows there's truth because in reality, we all deserve to be ignored by Jesus because of our sin. We all deserve to be exiled. And in some manner of speaking, metaphorically, we all deserve to be treated like dogs. So she knows there's some truth in what he's saying. But here's the beauty of it. She's not too proud to accept what the gospel says about her unworthiness. You with me? She doesn't get her back up and say, how dare you talk to me like that, Jesus? I don't have to stand for that. But on the other hand, she doesn't insult God by being too discouraged to seek his grace. There are two ways, folks, two ways to reject the grace of God. Two ways to... uh, to to reject Jesus as your savior. The first one is being too proud. It's called a superiority complex. And in a superiority complex, you say, I can be good enough. I don't need help. So I'll just be more and more good and eventually I will be clean and worthy and God will accept me. A superiority complex says, I don't need a savior. There's a gap between me and God and I don't need the cross to solve it. I can get there on my own. And I don't need Christianity and I don't need the church. But there's something that's equally as damaging that we haven't talked about yet. And it's not the superiority complex, it's the inferiority complex. It's the complex that says, man, I'm not even on the chart, I'm underneath the graph. And I'm unworthy and I don't deserve it. You got no idea what I've done in my life. So there's no way I even qualify for salvation. And this gap that exists between me and God, I mean, there's nothing that can cross it. Nothing at all. I'm too far gone. I've done too many bad things, that's it. I don't qualify to be saved or to be gaining entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus is gonna come along and say, both are equally bad, both. Tim Keller says in his book, King's Cross, on which this series is based, he says, in Western culture, we don't have anything like this kind of assertiveness. Not like this woman. We only have assertion of our rights. We do not know how to contend unless we're standing up for our rights, standing on our dignity and our goodness and saying, this is what I'm owed. But this woman is not doing that at all. This is rightless assertiveness, something we know little about. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. Remember what we said? The Bible is not a book about how bad men are. It's a book about how good God is. And Jesus is so amazed with her answer within the parable that verse 28 says, Jesus answered and said to her, oh woman, and I wish I could describe this to you in Greek. It's like, oh woman, wow. It's like ding, 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 right answer. Great is your faith. You can make a church, make them all. This is mega faith. 
Let it be to you as you desire. And the daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, you know what's going to happen from here on out to the book of Mark? Oh, it's going to, oh, this series is going to go from strength to strength. You know what happens now? Here's the message. The message is this to everybody. Stop hiding. Come on out from the shadows. Did you ever play hide and seek as a kid? I loved hide and seek. It might have something to do with I got to hide in the closet with Mary Beth Oaks, our little blonde, blue-eyed neighbor, but that's another story. <laughs> but I love playing hide and seek. The problem with hide and seek is, well, first of all, if you're a real competitor, you don't want to be found. But the very good hiding places are usually very uncomfortable because if they were comfortable, they wouldn't be good places to hide. So what first appears to be a great idea, as time grows, looks worse and worse as you get hot and get cramps and you get hungry and thirsty and irritable. And finally, and my favorite part of hide and seek is when they've not found you and then the person who's called it, classic name, it, he says, Ali Ali oxen free. Now nobody knows where that term comes from. It's probably Latin for liberate the oxen. <laughs> but insiders who play the game know exactly what that means. It means you're safe now. It means you can come home. Stop hiding. Come home. It's where you belong. And you won't be chased or penalized. Just come home. Come on home now. No matter how far away, just come on home. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells this story. And I want to end with it. Now, I want you to really concentrate and stay with me in this story because there's a great message here. He talks about a young girl who grows up in a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents are a bit old fashioned. They tend to overreact to her nose ring and the music she listens to and her tattoos. They ground her a few times and she just sees inside every time they do. She screams at her father, I hate you, and slams the door after, he, after they have an argument. And that night, Nancy says that she acts on a plan that she's rehearsed a thousand times. She runs away from home. She decides to go to Detroit. Now, she had visited Detroit a few times with her church youth group to see the Tigers play, but she figures if she goes to Detroit, her parents will never look for her there because in the Traverse City newspapers, they always report lurid details of gangs and drugs and violence in downtown Detroit. So she concludes again that that would be the last place her pa parents would look for her. California, yeah, maybe. Florida, maybe, but never Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay, gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. And she starts thinking to herself, man, I was right. My parents were wrong. This is living it. This is the life. And the good life does occur for a month, two months, even up to a year. And then the man with a big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. And since she's underage, men will pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse orders room service anytime she wants. Occasionally, she does think about her folks back home, but now their lives seem so boring, she can hardly believe she actually grew up in that place. A couple of weeks go by and she does have a brief scare when she sees her picture on the back of a milk carton with a headline that reads, have you seen this child? But then she notices her hair now is blonde and with all the makeup and body piercing jewelry, no one would ever mistake her as a child. After the first year, signs of illness begin to appear and it amazes her how fast the boss turns against her. And soon she finds herself out on the street without a penny to her name, 
She turns a couple of tricks at night, but it doesn't pay very much, and all that is just to support her drug habit. When the winter blows in, Yancey writes, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates behind big department stores. Although sleeping is the wrong word, he says, because a young single girl in downtown Detroit at night can never truly sleep. She can never relax her guard. So dark bands circle her eyes, her cough worsens, she becomes more and more ill. And then one night, as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden her life looks very differently. She no longer feels like a woman of the world, she feels like the little girl that she is, lost and frightened. And she begins to whimper and cry. Her pockets are empty and she's so hungry and she's so cold. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and she shivers under the newspapers that she's piled the top of her coat. Something jolts all of a sudden, a memory in her, a memory that makes her warm inside, an image in May in Traverse City, Michigan, of a million cherry trees all at blossom at the same time. And she says to herself, God, why did I forsake? Why did I leave my, my home? Pain stabs at her heart. She thinks to herself, man, my dog back home eats better than I do. And she's sobbing and she knows in a flash what she wants to do now. More than anything else, she just wants to go home. So she calls. Three straight phone calls, three straight answering messages. First two times, she just hangs up. The third time, she speaks, leaves a message. Dad, mom, it's me. And I was maybe wondering, could I come home? I'm catching a bus up your way and it'll get there around midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Traverse City and Detroit. So she has time to think about the flaws in her plan, how maybe they're on vacation, they're not even home. She should have waited until she spoke with them. She should have given them time for the shock to wear off because they've probably given up on her by now. They probably thought she was dead. It's been so long. So her thoughts bounce back and forth between what she's going to say to her dad and the worries about her plan and how faulty it really is. She writes the speech in her head while she's riding on the bus. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. Can you forgive me? And she says the words over and over. And every time she does, her throat tightens more and more because it's been years since she apologized to anybody. Finally, the bus rolls into the station and the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all you have, 15 minutes. She says, great, 15 minutes to decide the rest of my life. She checks herself in her compact mirror. She smooths her hair and licks the lipstick from her teeth, looks at the tobacco stains on her hands and wonders if her parents will notice. And then she walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect and not one of the thousands and thousands of scenes that she's played over and over in her mind prepare her for what she sees next. For there, writes Yancey, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters, great aunts, uncles and cousins, a grandmother and a great grandmother to boot. And they're all wearing these goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the back of the terminal, a computer generated sign that reads, welcome home. And out of the crowd of well-wishers steps dad, looks at his daughter and she's got tears quivering in her eyes that feel like hot mercury. And she begins her memorized speech, dad, I'm sorry, but he interrupts her. 
Hush, child. Got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. There's a banquet waiting for you at home. I wonder how that would apply to us and God. Mark is trying to tell us through this imagery that Jesus became a dog so that you and I could sit at the great banquet table. And I wonder if you are wondering why you're so lost. If you would make the connection between the feeling of lostness and a relationship with the creator and master of the universe. And if you would give your life to him today. And I wonder for those of you who know that you've strayed away from God so far, I wonder if you get the message of the parable and the story that no matter how far you've gone, his grace is big enough to cover. One step in the right direction and he'll come running down the road like the father and the prodigal son. And he'll throw his hands and arms around you, put a cloak on you and give you a ring to symbolize your adoption into the kingdom of heaven. You're never too far gone, ever. Father, I thank you for the truth and the power of your word. And I would pray right now in Jesus' name that your spirit would move among our people, your people, and that those who are far from you would repent, turn, and come back. Father, that those who have never come to you in the beginning, those, those who have never felt what it's like to be home, Father, that somehow they would find their way home. They would begin to see maybe for the first time the connection between lostness, a homelessness feeling, and their intimacy and their relationship and their submission to your Lordship and their lives would be changed forever. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness in Jesus' name, amen. That's the end of Pastor Jeff's message, another one in our remarkable series. Hopefully there was something in there for you to apply to your life. Next time we'll have a message about being genuinely happy by dying to our own wants and desires and putting others first. That you and I, sin is a laughing matter, but all sin wounds of somebody God loves. And he wanted the Old Testament people and the New Testament and us today to notice that sin is so serious that it requires a life to be forgiven before a cosmic creator. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.